0: So let's talk about the interconnection of these three themes. The resurrection of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the practice of prayer. How is it that they all come together for us? And what can we learn from Paul's words here in Romans chapter 8? Well, I want to draw your attention right out of the gate to Romans 8 verse 11. There's a lot here that we could unpack, and I could probably preach a whole series of messages just on Romans chapter 8. I'm not necessarily going to do that, but I want to focus with you this morning specifically on Romans 8, verse 11. Listen again to these words. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Does that sound like good news? So here's the first takeaway I want to put before you this morning, the first insight for us to consider together. Do you know, are you aware that it was the Holy Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus didn't just suddenly wake up on his own as if some internal alarm clock went off and he realized, oh, it's time to get up now. It's time to rise from the dead now. What happened, according to Paul, is that God's Spirit woke him up. It was the Spirit of the living God who gave life to Jesus' dead body. Think about that. The Holy Spirit was deeply involved, responsible for the resurrection of Jesus. So of all the things that we tend to focus on at Easter I'd venture to say that the role of the Holy Spirit in raising Jesus from the dead is not typically near the top of the list. Have you ever thought about this before? Have you ever considered the role of the Holy Spirit in the resurrection of Jesus? Yet that's exactly how the Apostle Paul is describing what really happened. Jesus didn't just suddenly wake up on his own. He had to be woken up. And Paul says it was the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Father, who did the waking. According to Romans eight eleven, it was the Spirit of the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul even says it twice, just for good measure, to make sure you get the point. So why is this important to think about and to recognize? Because we're talking about the Spirit of life. The Spirit of Of God gives life life comes from the spirit of the living God and so it stands to reason that just as the spirit first breathed life into Adam and Eve at the dawn of time the same spirit hovered over Jesus and and breathed life back into his lifeless body that first resurrection Sunday we're not told exactly how it happened But you can use your imagination here just a little bit and try to think about what would have taken place. You know, what's fascinating about this to me is that the gospel accounts don't really say too much about this. Have you noticed that they end, uh, you know, at, at the end of one particular chapter with the death and burial of Jesus? And then the next chapter begins with the discovery of the empty tomb. And so you could look at each of the four gospel accounts, right Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all four of them kind of do this the same way, and there's nothing wrong with it i'm not i 'm not trying to knock it i 'm just saying the gospel writers are telling the story from their perspective, and so the focus from their perspective is on the discovery of the empty tomb they show the women show up at the tomb that morning, they go to you know uh to pray, to give honor, whatever. And they get there, and, and there are some slight you know, differences in the accounts, but by all accounts, they discover that the tomb is empty. Jesus is no longer there. And they're told by an angel, you know, hey, it's just as he said. Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's no longer here. He's no longer in the tomb. So the story fast-forwards between the burial of Jesus and the discovery of the tomb. There's no explanation given in any of the four gospel accounts of exactly how Jesus was resurrected. All we know is that it happened. So when the women show up at the tomb, they discover the resurrection of Jesus has taken place, but they didn't actually see it happen. They weren't there the moment that it took place. They just arrived on the scene shortly after it happened so what this means then if you stop and think about it is that paul's words here in romans 8 verse 11 are the closest thing that we get to an actual explanation of what really happened when jesus rose from the dead and the great surprise to be discovered here is that the whole trinity was at work together in this moment God the Father raised up God the Son by and through the power of God the Spirit. Now here's the trouble, right? Here's the trouble with all this. And you have probably have heard me say this before. I've said it a bunch of times over the years. The trouble is that for all practical purposes, many Christians, many think and act as if the Holy Trinity is actually God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Book. But it's not. This is precisely why Francis Chan actually wrote a book uh, back a year or two ago called The Forgotten God. It's a book all about the Holy Spirit. And his title captures the essence of the problem The forgotten God. In fact, listen to just a few words by Francis Chan from the introduction to this book because it's such a compelling description of the problem regarding the Holy Spirit. He says, you know, you might think that calling the Holy Spirit the forgotten God is a bit extreme. Maybe you agree that the church has focused too much attention elsewhere, but you feel it's an exaggeration to say that we've forgotten about the Spirit. I don't think so. From my perspective, the Holy Spirit is tragically neglected and for all practical purposes, forgotten. While no evangelical would deny his existence, I'm willing to bet there are millions of churchgoers across America who cannot confidently say that they have experienced his presence or action in their lives over the past year. And many of them do not believe that they can. And then he goes on to say this. He says, skipping over a paragraph, perhaps we're too familiar and comfortable with the current state of the church to feel the weight of this problem. But what if you grew up on a desert island with nothing but the Bible to read? Imagine being rescued after 20 years and then attending a typical evangelical church. Chances are you'd be shocked for a whole lot of reasons, but that's another story. Having read the scriptures outside the context of contemporary church culture, you would be convinced that the Holy Spirit is an es- is as essential to a believer's existence as air is to staying alive. You would know that the Spirit led the first Christians to do unexplainable things to live lives that didn't make sense to, their, to the culture around them, and ultimately to spread the story of God's grace around the world. There's a big gap between what we read in Scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers and churches operate today. In many modern churches, you would be stunned by the apparent absence of the Spirit in any manifest way. And this, I believe, is is the crux of the problem. So, listen, friends. Can I tell you something really important? The Holy Bible has not replaced the Holy Spirit. The fact is that 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 holy book is vitally important to our growth in faith. But its writing was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that's behind the book and throughout the book, right? And Peter actually says uh, in his letter that men wrote as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That's what we refer to as the doctrine of inspiration. So the whole Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And at the time he was speaking of only the Old Testament books. Peter probably didn't even fully understand that that the very same thing was happening to him at that very moment. Paul also understood the importance of the Holy Spirit in our lives and and in the the life of Jesus. Matter of fact, if you back up from the chapter we're looking at, Romans chapter 8, zoom all the way back to Romans chapter 1, to the very introduction to the letter of Romans, and you'll see a fascinating reference in the first four ver- verses here. Listen to Paul's words of introduction to the book of Romans, the letter of Romans. Romans 1, to 1-4. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of god in power by his resurrection from the dead jesus christ our lord now now think about the logic of that statement think about the point that paul's trying to make just in the first 3 or 4 verses of the whole letter the introduction to the letter in these verses paul mentions all three members of the holy trinity and the Holy Scriptures, and notice what he says specifically about the Spirit. He says that Jesus was appointed Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, which happened through the Spirit. In other words, by raising Jesus up, the Spirit validated his true identity. Think about that. Or we might say, if Jesus hadn't been raised from the dead and was still dead to this day, still buried in the grave, then there's no way that he could have truly been the Son of God. His resurrection validated his identity. And that resurrection took place by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit confirmed The the true identity of Jesus by raising him from the dead. Now, what's interesting about this, too, is that likewise, through his three years of public ministry, it was the Spirit's power on Jesus that set him apart and made him different from every other person at the time. In in that era of Jewish history, there were a lot of so-called messiahs. There were a lot of people that wanted to be Messiah, a lot of people that wanted to fulfill the prophecies and deliver the Jewish people from their Roman oppressors. People heard Jesus speak with a unique authority. They recognized there was something different about him. And then they saw him perform miracles with a power that they had never witnessed before. So what set Jesus apart in the first place, even before he was resurrected from the dead, was the anointing of the Holy Spirit on his life. In fact, it's that very anointing that Jesus himself read about from Isaiah 61 when he preached his first sermon at the synagogue in Capernaum. And you remember what he said when he read that passage from Isaiah 61. He finished reading, he sat down and he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing Today. You remember what he read? Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners. Jesus did all those things. Incredible ministry. And we worship Jesus for all that he did. But he did everything through the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Everything Jesus did, everything he said, was through and in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then, you know, back up even one more step. How did Jesus' life begin in the first place? Do you remember what the angel Gabriel said to Mary when he showed up that that day and announced that she was about to give birth to a son as as a virgin? He said, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and you will find that you are pregnant with the Son of God. So think about that. Think about the timeline here of Jesus' life and ministry. From the moment he was conceived in Mary's womb throughout his life on earth to the moment he escaped the grave, everything Jesus experienced was enabled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that perspective give you a new and deeper sense of the Spirit's importance? To quote a little booklet that I want to share with you and distribute for your blessing and benefit, the Vineyards produced a little publication called The Holy Spirit. I'm going to pass those out today and invite you to take one home for you and your family to enjoy together. This booklet uh, has some great insights and one in particular that grabbed my attention right out of the gate was this statement, the Holy Spirit is how God gets things done. The Holy Spirit is how God gets things done. It's that simple. The quote really goes like this, God has a way of getting things done just like we do. And the Holy Spirit sits at the center of God's project management system. What we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday has everything to do with a much longer story of God getting things done by the Spirit in people's lives. That's a great way to put it. The Holy Spirit is how God gets things done and supremely how the resurrection of Jesus got done. But there's more. I feel like I'm selling you a set of Ginsu knives here, and <laughs> I have to you know, add on one more uh, blessing or benefit that you hadn't thought of before. Um, that morning, the party began. The new life of Jesus began to impact others. The resurrection of Jesus began to spill over into the lives of men and women like us. And so that morning, we could say, was the beginning of a new creation party in the heavens. And that party has continued to this day with every new life in Christ. Every new life in Christ becomes another opportunity for celebration, another party in the heavens. You know, Jesus said in the Gospels that every time someone repents and turns to God and receives the kingdom of God, the angels in heaven rejoice. Think about that. Think about how much rejoicing has gone on over the last 2,000 years. So I want you to think now with me about the Holy Spirit's work in us, right? And, and look back at Romans eight eleven and notice something here that's fascinating because Paul's really talking about Two sides of the same coin. He's talking about the reality of what the Spirit did in Jesus, raising him from the dead, and at the same time, he's talking about the reality of what the Spirit does in us. And so the point here is that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us and gives us the life of Christ. Romans 8.11 And if... The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. I don't know about you guys, but this I get a little excited about this. Come on. Think of it this way. The results of Jesus' resurrection keep showing up like an endless chain of dominoes knocking each other down one by one by one by one throughout human history. Things that we experience here today like the two baptisms that we witnessed a short time ago, the two lives of those young ladies changed by their faith in Christ are all a direct result of Jesus' resurrection from the dead by the Holy Spirit. And they are the ongoing work, that is the life change that we all experience, is the ongoing work of the same Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, Paul says, is the one that gives us life. So the first disciples, I I, I suppose, could never have imagined all that would happen as a result of the empty tomb that they discovered that first resurrection morning. The point that Paul's making, really, in Romans 8, is that Jesus was raised from the dead, but he was only the first person. And that's important. He was the first fruits, Paul says, which is a, a loaded term that I don't have time to unpack right now. But really, it, it, in short, it just represents the reality that the first fruits are a promise of more to come, Right? Jesus was the first one raised from the dead, but the first among many. God only knows how many. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.14, and he says it pretty plainly here, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Right? So we have a resurrection to look forward to. And these words indicate that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us up. So the the power of God's Spirit at work will be evident in our resurrection one day. There's a promise here for the future, hope for the future, eternal life with God, the resurrection from the dead, but there's still more. See, the point here is not just that we've been given the Spirit so that he can raise us from the dead after we die. Paul says, and, that's important, and the Spirit gives you life even now. Here and now. So, so Paul's words in 614, 1 Corinthians 6.14 indicate that there's a future hope of resurrection from the dead that all of us share with and in Christ. But here again, we have to be careful not to underestimate what the Spirit does for us. Because not only does Paul speak of the promise of our resurrection in the future, which is yet to come, he makes it perfectly clear that the same Spirit is already at work bringing the life of Christ to those who follow him here and now. The emphasis isn't just on the future. The emphasis is on the present reality of God's Spirit at work within us. So our life on earth, then, is a foretaste of the resurrection life of Jesus to the extent that we invite and allow the Holy Spirit to inhabit and fill our lives. This life here and now is meant to be, if I can say it this way as you all look forward to a big you know, Easter dinner, this life here and now is meant to be something like an appetizer before the real meal. In short, the Spirit's work in us is not just for the distant future, it's for this life here on earth, here and now. Now. So backing up a bit from verse 11, let me show you how this is at work throughout the passage as Paul writes about the ministry of the Spirit. Back up first to, to verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter 8. Therefore there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus the, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's a present reality that we experience. We do not have to live under the power of condemnation, Paul says, because we have been given new life in Christ. We have been given forgiveness for our sins. We have been set free from the law of sin and death so that we can live by the Spirit. And then just a bit further on, verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9, Paul says this, you are however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. That's a remarkable insight. Stop and think about what Paul's saying. What he's saying really means this, that that the moment you give your life to Jesus, the moment you confess your faith in Him, the moment you You commit yourself to to becoming His follower. The Spirit of God comes to dwell in your life. If you belong to Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. If you don't belong to Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul's saying. In black and white. If you are a follower of Jesus if you understand who he is and what he's done for you, if you've given your life to him, then his spirit is with you and in you. Here and now. What these, both these verses refer to, both, both 1 and 2 and verse 9, is what theologians often call regeneration, which is a fancy word for describing the spiritual rebirth that we experience when we commit our lives to following Christ. Regeneration is being born again in the Spirit, as Jesus explained it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. New life in the Spirit, for those who follow Jesus, doesn't begin with the resurrection of your dead body someday in the future. It begins with your confession of faith. It begins when the Holy Spirit turns the light on and you can see who Jesus really is, and what he's done for you. So the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is still giving new life to people all around us, all the time. And there's no more beautiful or powerful miracle to watch than a life changed by the spirit of the living God. We experience freedom in the Spirit. Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom, that is, from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from condemnation, and most of all, freedom from death itself by the Holy Spirit. You know, there's an interesting uh, bit of news that's come out over the last few days if you're uh, a news reader like I am, just trying to stay current, uh, just a bit anyway. And uh, there's been a lot of coverage over the last couple of days. Maybe you've seen it about uh, an old rocker, uh, back from you know, back in the probably even a little bit before my time, Alice Cooper. Anybody seen the stories about Alice Cooper over the last couple of days? And uh, he's getting some some airplay because he went public. I mean, he'd already been public with it some time ago, but he went public again with his confession of faith in Christ, which for somebody of his notoriety is a bit of a shocker, right? And for some reason, I'm going to call it the Spirit of God at work, the news networks, the wires picked up the story. Oh, Alice, Alice Cooper's talking about his faith in Jesus. And so, uh, you know, today um, I found this article just written yesterday or the day before, talking about Alice Cooper's faith and his conversion story, his testimony. And I think part of it is perhaps because um, he's actually got a lead role. He plays King Herod in a live production of Jesus Christ Superstar that's going to be aired on on TV tonight. So if you're interested, that's just a, you know, uh, FYI. But anyway... um, here, listen to this quote from an article about Alice Cooper. And I just offer this to you as an example of how powerfully the Spirit of the Living God can change a person's life. Here's what the article says just a little snippet about his conversion. Alice Cooper today looks much the same as the one of your, the one you remember from the Schools Out video. The hair is still long, teased, and jet black. The eyes are smeared with black eye makeup his tiny frame wrapped in head-to-toe black leather. It's all the same look, but sort of deflated. (laughs) Melted a little, as it happens when you're 70 years old, but dressing as the same character you were when you were 20. Where once he was the rebel, the renegade, now that twinkle in his eye doesn't so much warn of danger as it telegraphs mischief. He's playful. He was the bad boy rocker before, and it nearly killed him. Now, he's a dad. He's sober. He's a Christian. He's at peace. He's in a good place, and he knows it. And this is from the Daily Beast, not exactly known as a Christian-friendly publication. Going back, the only thing I didn't see coming Cooper says, was alcoholism. I didn't see it coming, and it hit me like a truck until I realized I wasn't just drinking. It was my medicine. 37 years later, I don't miss it. I have a lot of friends who died at 27 years old, he continues. Jimmy Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, those guys, they tried to be their characters off stage. I had to figure out a way to not bring Alice off stage. He only belonged up there. I had to learn how to coexist with him. Fittingly, given the occasion for our conversation, he credits Jesus in embracing his Christian faith after being being diagnosed as an alcoholic um, with saving his life. To continue to be Alice Cooper, the rock star, he had to rebirth Vincent Fernier, his given name. He had to go back to his roots. I was a prodigal son, Cooper tells me. He grew up in a Christian home. His dad was a pastor, his grandfather was an evangelist, even his wife's father was a pastor. I went as far away as I could get as I could possibly get, he says. I stood for everything wrong, and then I came back. How did he come back? By the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how. Did you catch the essence of the story? Vincent Vincent Fernier had turned into Alice Cooper. And then, by the conviction of the spirit at work, he turned back into who God had made him to be in the first place. And Vincent Fernier was reborn. He came back home to his Christian heritage and his identity in Christ, and his life was saved and radically changed, radically changed by the power of God's spirit at work within him. And friends, all of us have a testimony to share. Granted, you know, not every one of us has a testimony as colorful as that one, but every single one of us has a story to tell about how Jesus has changed our lives. Our stories may not be as colorful as the story of Vincent Fernier, but it's the same spirit at work in us that changed his life. So now with just a few minutes left, let me connect the last dot here for you. How does all of this relate to prayer? What does any of this have to do with prayer? With a few minutes we have left, let me connect the life of the Spirit back to our practice of prayer. Here's the last insight I want to put before you. Learning to depend on the Holy Spirit in prayer is critical... how the spirit governs our minds so a couple things about the spirit here that paul's describing in romans 8 first as we've seen already we've been promised that we will be resurrected from the dead one day secondarily we've been told we've been given an explanation of the reality that when we confess christ as lord we receive the presence of the holy spirit into our lives He's present with us and in us, dwelling within us, making us, our bodies, the temple of the Holy Spirit. But there's more. There's more. Paul talks in Romans 8 about what life is meant to look like when it's governed by the Holy Spirit. And that's where this gets immensely practical, right? We're not just talking about what's going to happen one day when we resurrect from the dead like Jesus did, nor are we talking about what happened one day in the past when we were converted to faith in Christ. We're talking now about a present reality, that the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the living God, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, is with you and in you to help you live the life of Christ here and now. Come on. Can you get a little excited about that? So in the Gospel accounts of the resurrection, there's no direct link to be found between Jesus' resurrection and the practice of prayer. But there is a link. Let me me explain. There is a link. The common link between the resurrection and our practice of prayer is that both of them have everything to do with the Holy Spirit. Because as we pray, the resurrection power and life of the Holy Spirit The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is activated in our lives. It's released in our lives. That's how it happens. That's how this works. Think about this just for a few minutes. This mysterious connection between these various themes. What I'm hoping and praying will come from our time together is that that you'll get a fresh revelation from the Spirit of God about how the resurrection of Jesus directly relates to and affects your practice of prayer. Would that be helpful? Would that be practical? What I really want to see God do this morning for each one of us gathered here is to raise our faith and expectation for the Holy Spirit to move in and through our lives. And the key to that, the key to having the power for a Jesus-like life is found, Paul says, in living by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and we're led by the Spirit as our minds, Paul says, are governed by the Spirit. Look at this, and listen closely. Romans 8, verses 5 to 7, same passage. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Anybody want a little more life and peace? Come on. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So so here's the practical question that Paul's driving at. Where's your mindset? Where is it? Is it set, fixed on what the Spirit desires and therefore governed by the Spirit and filled with life and peace? Or is it set or fixed on something else? Do you ever find yourself fixated with things that bother you? Let's be real. Do you ever find yourself fixated on things that hurt you or disappoint you? The Spirit of the living God wants to give you life and peace by governing your thoughts. Would that be helpful to anyone here? Doesn't that sound immensely practical? And this has everything to do with the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, because it's the same spirit. And if the same spirit of Jesus can raise him from the dead, out of the grave, breathe life into his body again, do you think that that spirit has the power to help you think better? These are challenging words to hear, but they're vital because Paul's describing something that that can change your life. I mean, more, even more than it's already been changed. Only those minds, he says, that are actively governed by the Spirit of God are capable of doing that which truly pleases God. Think about that. If your mind is not governed by the Spirit, then you can't act in ways that are pleasing to the Father. God still loves you, and you can still be saved by his grace, but I think what Paul's describing here, what Paul's offering to us and inviting us into is an experience of a spirit-led, spirit-filled kind of Jesus life. This is far beyond just saying, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe Jesus died for my sins. This is about living life with your mind governed by the Holy Spirit. And the only way for us to do that is by cultivating a life of prayer in which we consistently and continually die to ourselves and confess our sins and our selfishness and invite the Spirit to help us think differently so that Christ Jesus can live in us more and more fully. That, my friends, is what prayer is all about. It's not just bringing your laundry list to God. It's about inviting him to change the way you think and feel and act so that your life is filled and led by the Spirit of God. This theme is present throughout Scripture and our time's about up here so I'm going to wind this down but I want to just close with a couple references from Ephesians because Paul, uh, not in Romans but in Ephesians, really captures the heart of this connection between the power of the Spirit and the practice of prayer. We've seen already from his words in Romans how it's all connected to the resurrection of Jesus. I hope I've made that clear. But what I want you to see now for just these last few moments, is the, is the power, the sheer power of God's Spirit that is available to you. Listen to what Paul says. I'm going to give you three different references from the letter of Ephesians, just briefly, to help you meditate on this connection. Ephesians one 18 to 18-21, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and, here it is, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul's praying that we would be enlightened, that we would have a revelation so that we would know the great power available to us. That power, he goes on to say, here's the connection again, That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted, God exerted, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. That's a long run-on sentence in which Paul's basically saying, again, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you. What are you going to do with it? Ephesians 3.16, a little bit later. Same connection again. I pray that out of His glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then a few verses later, one more time for good measure. Verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able... To do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. So basically, if I can translate Paul's words, put them in you know, sort of everyday English vernacular here, he's saying, No matter what you think you can ask for or imagine, God's capable of doing even more. You can't imagine big enough. You can't ask big enough to access all the power of the Spirit available to you. God can do so much more than even whatever you could ask or imagine. So Paul's words here point us toward the dynamic life of a partnership, a holy partnership between Jesus and his church, his bride, his people. And we are called in that partnership to carry on the great things that Jesus did to participate in his kingdom ministry to the world. But for that to happen, we have to start thinking a little bigger, don't we? We have to start activating our imagination and asking for greater things. Do you believe what the Apostle John said, right? He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And who is it that's in you? The Spirit of the living God. What are we missing out on? That's the question. I'm going to close with. What are we missing out on that God has in mind for us because we fail to ask for more of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray.